when it comes to this idea of faith, believing isn't something that should necessarily be done blindly. But what we find is that there is enough compelling evidence and motivation for us to have a reason to believe. Welcome to the Architecting Through Life podcast, where we dig into principles for building ourselves up as individuals while navigating the realities of this thing called life. The podcast is dedicated to young adults and anyone with a deep hunger to grow in their journey of being all that they were created to be. My name is Simon Gubeni, and with each episode, I'll be discussing thoughts and insights drawn from life, from the Bible, from unique experiences, as well as from other great minds and mentors. Thanks for joining me on this journey, and I do hope that you'll enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Architecting Through Life podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. Um, Today is the third and last episode in our series of episodes which I've entitled Case Studies on Faith. If it is your first time listening, do check out the two previous episodes which basically looked at different case studies on faith. The one was entitled Faith in Dark Times and the other one was entitled Faith versus Feelings and Circumstances. Um, In an earlier episode, basically when we were talking about faith, we described faith as being an attitude of taking God at his word and basically expecting that word to fulfill whatever it says it will do, right? There was an attitude towards God's word and it's an attitude of expectation that what God has said will be fulfilled in accordance to what he has said. In today's episode, we'll be looking at a case study on faith, which will give us some reasons to believe. Um, if, if we're saying that faith is an attitude of taking God at his word, we want to see a few case studies or a case study that will help us have a reason to do that, a reason to believe that we can take God at his word. And on top of that, um, the case study will then help us see that we can have a reasonable reason to believe that the Bible is a source of being the word of God. Right. So if we're saying that faith is taking God at his word, the case study that we'll look at will basically help us have a reason to regard that the Bible itself is a source of being um, what God says, right? Um, so yeah, well, I guess we'll jump right into it. So, growing up, I used to love watching um, a series called Law and Order. Um, Law and Order, which was basically like, like a drama series where each episode involved lawyers and investigators trying to get to the bottom of what seemed like a mysterious case or a crime, right? So in each show, it was like a quest for truth to try and find out if someone was guilty or not. Um, the lawyers would try to investigate a mysterious case to try to find the suspect and then look at various cases and scenarios and evidences to try and validate whether or not a, uh, a suspect was guilty or innocent, right? And... I believe that we can pretty much do the same when it comes to digging into why it is that we can take the Bible to be true or to be a true source of God's word. And and then as a result, then have faith in it. Right. And we'll look at today's case study a bit like a case in a court of law where um, we're reviewing this person's eyewitness testimony. And then we are then a jury to then say whether or not that um, we can offer a verdict towards that, a verdict of whether or not the word is trustworthy or whether or not it's it's not true. Right. And to do that, I want to look at the case of a man called Peter. A man called Peter. Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus, also otherwise known as Simon, um, weirdly enough. So Peter was one of the 12 followers and disciples of Jesus who were with Christ for the three and a half years of his ministry, of his preaching and teaching and all of those things. And Peter writes two letters to the different Christians scattered abroad um, in 
the New Testament books, which are called the First and Second Peter, right? the two epistles or letters which are written by the Apostle Peter. And he writes in this book of Second Peter, in the first chapter, something which I think is, is quite notable when you read it. In Second Peter chapter 1, it says something in the 16th verse. He says that we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of his majesty, right? Referring to Jesus, he says in a different version that we're not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes, right? So all in all, what Peter is saying there is that when we're telling you all of these things about this man called Jesus, about his work, about his majestic miracles, about his, his splendor and all these things, we weren't writing about things that we had heard, right? It was things that someone else was telling us. We were writing about things which we had seen with our own eyes. Another version says that we are eyewitnesses of his majesty, right? Another one of Jesus' disciples called John, when he writes in another epistle, he writes in the book of 1 John, also a letter to Christians scattered abroad. He writes in 1 John, the first chapter, in the very first verse, he says that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning Jesus, the word of life. It says that which we have seen and which we heard, it's that that we declare to you. Then it says so that you may have fellowship with us. So what John is saying about his experience with Jesus is that it was not something that he had heard of a story that he had been told, but he's writing about that which he had seen, which his hands have handled and which he had heard with his own ears, right? They're writing about things which they had experienced firsthand. And as a result, they are writing as eyewitnesses of the life, the character and reality of this man, which noted became known as Jesus Christ. Right? And so John and Peter are writing to us, not as audience members of a story that they'd heard, but as eyewitnesses. And they're giving an eyewitness testimony of this man, Christ Jesus. Right? So they're writing to us to convince us of the experience as eyewitnesses. Now, Basically, in simple terms, an eyewitness is someone who has a knowledge about something. And in law or in a court of law, an eyewitness is then someone who would provide their evidence or testimony of what they either know or what they claim to know as the truth. Right. So if you think about in a court of law where someone is on trial, the eyewitness comes in and says, look, I know what I'm talking about because I witnessed it. I saw it firsthand. I heard it. And as a result, their word is then taken to have some level of truth to it. And so Peter and John's accounts are both regarded as eyewitness accounts, right? Um, and and they're the eyewitnesses because they had seen it, right? Now, when it comes to eyewitness accounts, most of the people whom we know about in ancient history, we know about them through the eyewitness accounts of those who are writing about them, right? Whether you think of Julius Caesar or historic presidents or things like that, all of those notable figures are people who we know about because of not only their own biographical writing, but the writings of those who are eyewitnesses to their existence, right? Now, but about eyewitness accounts, eyewitness accounts are generally taken to be credible sources of truth, right? as opposed to what we would otherwise call circumstantial evidence, right? The eyewitness evidence is better than what we would call circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is basically evidence who, whose circumstances basically point to or imply whether someone is guilty or not. So if you think about if there was a murder scene that took place and the victim died by stabbing, and then evidence is found that there's a knife with blood on it in my car, the circumstantial evidence implies that I was either guilty of stabbing that person or as a party to the crime 
of stabbing that person. That's what the circumstances seem to imply. But an eyewitness account, though, is someone who has seen what took place. So if we were to go back to this same illustration, if someone had died by stabbing and a knife with blood on it is found in my car, the circumstantial evidence points to the fact that I may be a suspect, right? But if another eyewitness says, nope, the victim, I saw them being stabbed by um, a young, short Asian lady, right? Someone who looks completely different to myself as a black African male, their eyewitness account will bear more weight than even the circumstantial evidence. Them saying that, no, I saw a suspect who looks completely different to what the circumstances are pointing to, their eyewitness account will be more credible than what's what would otherwise be taken as circumstantial evidence. Though, obviously, those would all have to work together in order to prove a case. But the point I'm making is that an eyewitness account has a certain level of credibility beyond merely circumstantial evidence, right? Um, so that's that's why the, the eyewitness accounts can be taken as credible because they give what's, what's called empirical evidence, right? Empirical evidence is basically information that's received through the means of experience or the senses, right? Um, it, it, it helps to verifying a truth or the falsity of a claim. So Peter's and James's eyewitness accounts that that which we've seen, which we've heard, that is empirical evidence because they know it by experience, right? And so they are able to verify whether or not Jesus' existence was true or whether it was false, right? And so an eyewitness, they, 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 they are more credible than what's otherwise called a, a hearsay witness, right? Who knows about something by hearsay because eyewitnesses are what's regarded as what percipient witnesses, right? Percipient um, witnesses, right? They, they, per they perceived and experienced by seeing and touching what, they, what it is that they are talking about, right? They're percipient witnesses of what they're writing about, right? So they give a certain level of credibility um, to to what they're writing about. And it's when, when there's multiple corroborating eyewitness accounts that the case then bears more weight, right? So if five people saw the same thing and they're all five of them giving a, a testimony which corroborates with the claims of the other four people, their eyewitness accounts bears much more weight because of its corroboration with other people, because of how it aligns with what all the other eyewitnesses are saying. And that's what the writings of the New Testament writers give us, that when Peter and John are writing, they're saying we're writing as eyewitnesses to the majesty of this person and thus it is reliable because their eyewitnesses and their eyewitness accounts in the broader sense are aligned to each other, right? They are related, right? So when there's multiple eyewitness accounts, the common elements basically gives weight to the testimonies of what it is that they're saying, right? And obviously if there are differences, those are then kept in mind, right? So Peter and John are eyewitnesses of this person called Jesus and they're testifying of what they had seen firsthand. Now, not only are they writing about what they'd seen firsthand, but they held on to this testimony even throughout the course of their long lives, right? So obviously when James, when Peter and John experienced Jesus, the, the, the New Testament writes about how John was a young man and they held on to this testimony even throughout the course of their long lives unto death, right? Um, they, they died as martyrs holding on to the testimony that they were giving that, look, this man was there, he lived, we saw him, we lived with him, and he was really among us, right? And they refused to let go of this testimony even in the face of death, right? And there's a reason why that's important. This idea that John and Peter held on to their testimony even up to their deaths is because of what's this 
idea of what's called a, a dying declaration, right? A death, a deathbed testimony, where um, if a person holds to their testimony even in the face of death, or even they know that they are dying and they give a testimony to something, their dying declaration is regarded as true because of the idea that when someone is facing death, they have no reason to try and fabricate a lie because they've, they've, they stand to lose nothing, right? And that's the rationale behind it. It's the idea that a person who has a deathbed declaration, their final words, they can be taken to have some level of truth because in their dying state, they have no plausible reason to want to fabricate a lie, right? Or, or, or falsity, right? And so James or Peter and John, in their testimonies, died as martyrs still holding on to the truth of their claims. So Peter, history narrates how Peter died by upside down crucifixion for refusing to deny his testimony of the reality and the works of Jesus, right? So he, even in the face of death, was unwilling to renounce his testimony, thus giving more weight to the forcefulness or the truthfulness of what it is that he's saying that, look, I know what I'm talking about. And for me to deny it would be to lie, right? And, and he was even willing to face death on account of that, right? And he was willing to face that death in a situation where for him to deny it would have spared his life, right? If he had denied the reality of Jesus, it would have spared his life. And so then says that what he has said, he really believed it to be true, right? The same with John as well. Um, if you read um, how John was banished to an island of Patmos for refusing to deny his faith in Christ, um, other narrators or other Records narrate how he was thrown into a cauldron of oil, right? A boiling pot of oil or a, a drift if, if you're familiar with something like that. He was thrown into a boiling pot of oil for refusing to deny or denounce his beliefs to the reality and experience of this person called Jesus. So their dying declarations, as they corroborate with each other, give a sense of weight to the credibility of what it is that they're telling us about. That, look, we are writing not a story that we have heard, but you can take us to court and we're able to stand as eyewitnesses to the reality of this man called Jesus, right? So they're writing as eyewitnesses. So if we were to evaluate the writings of these New Testament writers as testimonies in a court of law, what they give us is enough reason to trust that what they're saying has some weight of evidence for us to take their words seriously, right? The fact that they are eyewitnesses, the fact that they were contemporaries with Jesus, meaning that they lived in the same time with him, the fact that their eyewitness accounts corroborate with each other, right? That they, they one isn't saying that Jesus was from Nazareth, why the other one is saying Jesus was from Bethlehem or something like that. Their, their eyewitnesses accounts are, are, are corroborating, right? Um, so the overall corroborating evidence of his life, of his character, of his work, of this person, of Jesus. And then on top of that, their deathbed confessions, right? That they're willing to even stake their lives on their testimonies. And some even had to pay that price to say that, look, if you don't deny this testimony that you keep insisting on that Jesus was true, then it means that you will be put to death. And even in the face of death, they still held on to the testimonies of what they of what they were saying, right? And these testimonies didn't contradict with each other, right? They both, they all agreed that he was born in Bethlehem. They all agreed that he was raised in Nazareth. They all agreed that he was um, a poor man. They all agreed that he was um, not attractive. They all had corroborating evidence to his life, his character, and his work, right? But in view of all of this, in view of the um, weight of evidence as eyewitnesses, right? In view of the fact that their eyewitness accounts could stand scrutiny, right? They could be interrogated and looked at as 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 witnesses. 
Peter says something which ties into the overall idea of case studies on faith. If we go back to the idea of what Peter is saying in Second Peter, the, the first chapter, Second Peter chapter one verse sixteen, he says there that we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of Jesus, but we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes, right? And then he continues and says that because of that experience, we have an even more greater confidence in the message that was proclaimed by the prophets, right? And then he says you must pay attention to their message as a light that shines in a dark place. What Peter is pointing to is the fact that, look, we are eyewitnesses and our eyewitness testimony is credible. But then he says, but that experience makes us more confident in the message of the prophets. Right. And other versions of other versions of the Bible, it says that we have a more certain word of prophecy or we have a more sure word of prophecy. Right. And the point that Peter is making there is that, look, in as much as my eyewitness testimony is true, there is a much more trustworthy source of information in the writings of the prophets. What he's saying there is that the words of the prophets are more trustworthy and more certain than even my eyewitness accounts. And that's that's a that's a large claim to make, you know. When when he writes about the prophets, basically what we can understand prophecy to be is that prophecy is basically when people write about future events which are to take place, and when those events do take place, then we can then trust that what the prophets were writing about are true, right? That the prophets were writing about things which were yet to take place, and the fulfillment of those things which took place give evidence to the fact that their words are the truth. And so Peter's saying that we and them could have greater conf- excuse me, we could have greater confidence in the words of the prophets and greater confidence in the words of the prophets even more than the eyewitness accounts of Peter and John and the other disciples. And so the, the point that Peter makes is that the prophets give us a greater certainty, a certainty in the truthfulness of God's word, even more certain than the eyewitness account which Peter is giving about the reality of this man, Jesus. Right? And it's the idea that prophecy basically proves without a doubt that God's word is true. Right? So, for example, if I were to give you an accurate prediction nine times straight of something that was going to take place, if I were to give you, um, let's say, the lotto numbers, nine times out of ten, I give you a prediction of what the lotto numbers will be. If that were to take place with 100% accuracy nine times out of 10, you can be sure that the 10th time will be worth taking seriously, right? Uh, the idea that our, if, if I'm able to predict something which will take place with certainty and I'm not able to preempt it, that means I can't manipulate the outcome. You can then trust that my word is true, right? That my word is accurate. And this is the point that Peter is making with regards to the words of prophecy. And it's, it's, it's a principle which Jesus also gives in another place. In the Last Supper, when Jesus talks to his disciples, he foretells his, his death. He foretells many other events. Then he says to them in, in John 14, verse 29, it says there, I have told you these things before they happen, so that when they happen, you may have a reason to believe. And that's the idea that the word which was given throughout the Bible has in it certain elements of events which were foretold that they would happen and those were given so that you and i may believe as we see how those things have been fulfilled it's a reason to believe and it's a reason that is more certain than even the trustworthy eyewitness accounts of peter and john and so jesus in wanting us to believe and the disciples wanting us to believe they wanted us not only to believe blindly but to have a reasonable basis to ground our faith and that is 
through the foretelling and the fulfillment of events which were to take place so that when those things were fulfilled, we may have confidence that those words are true and so then we may believe. Right Now, Peter, when he writes, um, he, he wasn't always the kind of, he didn't always have the kind of faith that he had. You know? um, if, if you were to read a backstory um, of, of Peter, maybe starting from the Last Supper, we find that in the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples in, in around Matthew 26 and Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples that, look, gents, I'm going to die, right? Um, that he's going to, to go to the cross. He tells them of his death. Then Peter responds and says, look, no, Jesus, I, I, I won't let that happen. You know, I'd rather die with you. Um, then Jesus foretells that not only will he die, but that his disciples will betray him, right? That they will um, they'll deny him and that they'll um, run away. And then Peter says, no, Jesus, I will rather die than deny you. Then Jesus says, you know what, Peter, not only are you guys going to deny me, but you're going to deny three times that you even know me. And then the cock will crow. Later on, Jesus gets taken by the Romans and the Jews. Um, Peter, as was foretold by Jesus, Peter denies Jesus three times, even by cursing and swearing. Jesus gets crucified. Um, and then the disciples, seeing Jesus get captured, they all run away and they scatter, right? And eventually after Jesus' crucifixion, um, the disciples hide away because of their being discouraged by the fact that their leader has now died. And not only are they hiding away out of discouragement, but they're also hiding because they fear that what happened to Jesus will also happen to them, right? So they're fearing for their lives, having lost their leader and their defender, who was their um, main hope, right? So three days later, after they're hiding, after Jesus crucified, we find that the guards who are guarding Jesus' tomb, they report that, look, the tomb which we're looking after is now empty and the body of Jesus isn't there. And the claim of the guards is that the disciples came and stole the body while they were asleep, right? Um, that's the claim of the guards. But these are the same guards who were crucifying Jesus a few days before and from whom the disciples were actually hiding. The disciples, on the other hand, their side of the story is that, look, we were in hiding and Jesus then resurrected and appeared first to Mary and some women and then to us, right? But what they all agree on, both the disciples and the Roman guards, is that on the third day after the crucifixion, that tomb, the tomb of the man who was crucified a few days before, was empty, right? They all agreed to the fact that that tomb was empty. That's just the, the broad story narrating from the Last Supper through to the resurrection. Now, the disciples then claim that Jesus was resurrected, that he appeared to them, that he appeared to other people um, as well. And then that was before him being ascended up. Now, everyone agrees that the tomb was empty. Everyone agrees that had, he had died. And so a couple of weeks later, after Jesus had ascended to heaven, the same Peter who had denied Jesus, the same one who denied him and ran away, um, because of fearing the Jews, that the Jews would do the same to him. This same Peter stood before the same Jews who had killed Jesus. And then he says something which was a very bold declaration of newfound confidence. In the second chapter of Acts, we find Peter preaching a message to the Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem. Right, There was a large body of Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem. And in the second chapter of the book of Acts, Peter preaches to them a message which he derives from a prophecy that he reads from the book of Psalms. Now, in the second book of Acts, we read something there which Peter says, which is a, a source of his, his newfound confidence. He says from the second, 22nd verse of Second Peter, it says, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you all know. But God knew what would happen, and he prearranged a plan which was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. 
with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. And so Peter still continuing, he says, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life because death could not keep him in its grip. Says King David said this about him. Now, Peter quotes David. In the, in the Psalms, he quotes Psalms chapter 16, I believe it's verse 10. He says there, I see that the Lord is always before me and I will not be shaken. He is at my right hand. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. So that was Peter quoting the 16th chapter of Psalm. Now listen to what David then says or what Peter says in commentary to the verses which he just cited. He says, Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, right? So he says David was a prophet and he knew that God had promised with an oath that David's own descendants would sit on his throne. But David was looking into the future, speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Then Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witnesses to this. Now he is exalted to the place of the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And he continues and says, The Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit. And then he says, David himself never ascended into the heavens. Yet he said, you know, that Jesus will ascend to heaven and sit in his right hand. Then Peter says, Let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. And then all the people that listened to Peter were then pierced in the heart and they said, okay, guys, what do you want us to do now? Right? They were convicted by the message and they asked Peter, in view of what you have said, what must we do? In summary of the whole story, Peter is standing boldly before the same people whom he ran away from a couple of weeks before because he was fearing that they would crucify him the same way they crucified Jesus. And Peter's confidence comes from what he cites in the book of Psalms. He says there that when David was writing about the Messiah, he foretold that the Messiah would be dead and that he would be resurrected. And so he would come again, right? He would rise again. And Peter is saying that thing that which Peter, which David wrote about, David was a prophet and he wrote about the future and we are eyewitnesses to the fulfillment of that prophecy. And on account of the fact that we have witnessed that prophecy being fulfilled, he has the bold confidence to stand in the face of these people who had crucified him, who had crucified Jesus because of the confidence that he now has in the fulfillment of the prophecy. And this is the point that we're making is that when Peter saw the fulfillment of the prophecy, right, he had a newfound confidence even in the face of what he was fearing before. Because the word of prophecy is, as Peter has said, it is trustworthy, right? The prophecy about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb are all evidence to the fact that that word, that prophetic word, as Peter said, is trustworthy, more trustworthy than even Peter's eyewitness account. Sometimes the word of God, as it's written in the New and Old Testament writings, sometimes the word of God is more certain than even what our feelings and apparent circumstances say to us. Because the prophetic word 
is more certain. You know, our senses at times deceive us, right? What you think you saw might not be what you saw. Our circumstances at times may deceive us. You know, what you think will happen might not be what happens. But the reality is that the, the Bible is giving us evidence to believe that God's word, the prophetic word, is certain. And that's what Peter is saying to us is a reason to believe. He says, look, guys, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we talked about the coming of the Messiah, but were eyewitnesses. And more than even our eyewitness accounts, we have a more certain word of prophecy, which you find and which you should depend on as a light that shines in a dark place. It says we have more confidence in the word of prophecy. And then he says, but on top of this, we see the fulfillment of this. And then he says, let everyone know of a certainty when he responds to the Jews that God has made this same Jesus whom you guys crucified. He has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, those aren't just names. You know, when people think about the term Christ or the, the Lord Jesus Christ, those aren't just names, but they are titles which refer to his authority and his power, right? And Peter's saying, let every Jew know that this man, Jesus, wasn't just the man who walked among us barefoot and preaching, but through the fulfillment of his death and resurrection and the empty tomb, we can be certain that he is the spoken of Messiah, that he is the Christ who has power enough to help us in every situation that you might face, right? Who has power enough to deliver us from the very bondage of our failed habits and failures and sins that um, tend to come about, right? And so in the overall picture that we're finding is that Peter, as our case study, writes about the eyewitness experience that he had with Jesus, together with John, that he had an eyewitness account that corroborated with other eyewitnesses, and he was even willing to go to the death, to the grave with his eyewitness testimony. But then he says, we have a more certain word of prophecy, which is our reason to believe that when God has said something, we see the fulfillment thereof. And the prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus is one of many other prophecies which talked about his life, his death, his resurrection, and even prophecies that relate to our day as modern day believers. We see that the fulfillment of the prophetic word gives confidence in the fact that, look, what God has said is the truth and it gives us reason to believe. So if you and I are then looking for a reason to have faith, a reason to say, why do we, why can we take God at his word? We see that his word having been fulfilled shows us that his word is not only um, powerful and it's not only deep, but it's also true that we can take it to the bank and if it's true that you know the life and death and resurrection of jesus was foretold then we can take it to be true that every other promise that he has made is also true right the promises of his protection the promises of his guidance the promises of all things working together for good is also true and it is more true than what even our eyewitness accounts may try to tell us that if everything is not working out for good his promise is that all things will work together for good. And so through the prophetic word, as Peter says, we have a more certain confidence in the fact that God's word is the truth. That's it for today's episode. I hope it makes sense. Let me know what you think. Otherwise, my name is Simon, and I'm wishing you all the best on your journey of architecting through life. Thanks for tuning in. Much love. Thank you for listening to the episode that you've just heard on the Architecting Through Life podcast. If you found it valuable, please kindly do me the favor of um, sharing it and maybe leaving a comment if you'd like. Um, I really like to get your thoughts, any impact that you might feel it may have. And do feel free to share it with someone else so that it can be a benefit to them as well. Thank you so much for your time and do join us again on the next episode of the Architecting Through Life podcast.